Hi there, listeners, and welcome to episode 51 of the Value Through Vulnerability podcast. Today, I'm really, really excited to introduce you to Tim Roberts, who is the founder of Infused Coaching and Training. Get ready for a really hard-hitting, direct, and really empathetic conversation. I really, really love Tim's style. Uh, A couple of the things that he speaks about, which I just want to leave you with as you get going with this conversation, is one, he speaks about the fact that we need to empower ourselves. However, we need to do that. We need to create the environment for people to choose empowerment. I think that's a really, really interesting statement. So I'd like to leave that with you uh, before you get involved in this discussion. And the second point that really resonated with me, which I think is a nice precursor to this discussion, is we spend millions on systems to meet minimal deliverables, but nowhere near as much on people. My question then, and Tim points to this as well, is should we be spending as much on human investment as we do on systems investment? See what you think as we go through the conversation. He and I would really appreciate any feedback you are willing to offer. So here we go with Tim Roberts from Infused Coaching and Training. Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability. This is a human-centered podcast from the Listening Organization. And today I am really excited to have Tim Roberts onto the podcast, who is the founder of Enthuse Coaching and Training, and is just a really, really awesome human being. So, hello, Tim. Thanks, Gary. Greg, I can't top that introduction, can I? Thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. But uh, I'll tell you what you could add to that introduction, though, Tim, for our listeners. Maybe just give us a bit more background as, you know, how did you come about setting up Enthuse, and also what are you passionate about? Yeah, um, there's maybe a bit of where do I start with that. <laughs> um, probably, I guess that probably, probably kind of brings us into today and then perhaps give a bit of background really. So, yeah, uh, i uh, founder of NTU's Coaching Training where I am coaching facilitator. So, started that business um, coming up to 12 months, funnily enough, um, and then kind of officially launched it to the world in January of this year. In terms of how I got to that place, um, I, I guess like a lot of people really have a kind of maybe different or varied background so um, I'm not someone who kind of set out to have this kind of coaching facilitation as a career it kind of came about really through a lot of leadership experience so I was a leader at crikey 21 years old I think um, so I have a lot of grey hairs and mental and physical scars to prove that had an amazing journey as a manager in different sectors managing teams you know worked up to a senior leader managing teams of 30 people, which meant everything, you know, from having people progress and turn into fantastic human beings and go on and have amazing careers, achieving, you know, targets, budgets, et cetera, et cetera, right the way through to also being punched, being bullied, um, all sorts of things, kind of, you know, everything you can expect to uh, happen to you as a manager, I feel happened to me in different organisations. And then had that thing happened to me, which now as I work with more and more clients and speak to more and more people, seems to be something that a lot of people need and a lot of people benefit from. And for me, that was getting to work with a particular person who took a chance on me, who challenged me, who pushed me. And that started from uh, basically a phone call that this uh, lady made to me and said, right, there's a job being advertised tomorrow, and you're going to apply for it. 
Uh, that job took me into my first foray into learning and development um, back in good old Eddie Stobart, good old transport business, and never looked back really. Uh, and I think when I think through those last, uh, I guess, what, best part of 10 years really, what an unbelievable journey, being challenged, being pushed, just throwing myself into learning, 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 getting my badges, as they say, in terms of becoming a qualified coach, doing my NLP practitioner, uh, becoming accredited trainer-trainer. Just an amazing journey where I think for me, going from that world of this is my job in X company and this is what my job does to, oh my God, I can do something that I love and I can actually wake up in the morning and think, I can't wait to go to work. And really having my eyes open that you have a choice and I think that's the big kind of life-changing moment, really. I don't mind putting it that way. It's not an epiphany. It's something that happened um, through, I guess, you know, a little bit of luck and also me building good relationships with people in organisations. And then, yeah, that was the real kind of eye-opener for me. And I think what I found then as I've been on that journey is that when you find that thing that you love, for me, that is, I guess, learning and development to give it its kind of wider title within learning development the bit that I love is coaching is facilitating is public speaking is creating that environment for people to develop themselves and I really always stress that people develop themselves you know I'm not one of these people who say I develop this person I do that people develop themselves my role is to create the environment from which they can choose empowerment and, and through that kind of opportunity that I found myself for getting into learning development I've created that purpose for myself and my purpose is to make people think and that's what really kind of brought us to today, really, in terms of creating enthusiasm. My real drive for that was to live that bit, that purpose and really create a world for myself where I can do what I absolutely love. So when I wake up in the morning, I open my eyes and go, great, I get to do what I love today. And what am I passionate about? I'm very passionate about people. Having had the experiences I've had, and I can see that I was one of your typical managers that, you know, didn't really care about other people and put myself first. And it was all about me. And I had to hit the tag and I had to do that. Looking back now, I can see that did nothing but make me bloody miserable. I can see that there's nothing but changed me in terms of I wasn't going home and being myself. And that's the most important thing. And that's something that I'm really passionate about. In whatever work I do, whether it's coaching individuals, working with teams through some of my enthused programs where we, we do some team development or working as a consultant with a larger organization and when I'm facilitating programs that's something I always kind of really focus on whether it's time management or personal effectiveness really get to know yourself really identify what are you what do you stand for who are your heroes what's important to you because that's what makes you the best leader possible that's what makes you happy that's what makes you, again, when you open your eyes in the morning, you know, be able to go, yeah, I get to go work with people that I want to be around. I get to go and be myself. But that's what's important, you know. And for me, you know, you and I know each other quite well, Gary. I had a really tough year last year in terms of mental health, mm -hmm. um, where I was diagnosed with severe depression. And, you know, for me, that was like getting run over by a bus, standing up and somebody hitting you with a baseball bat. Um, because the kind of person I am, you know, my business is called Enthused. That probably gives away quite a bit about my personality. I like to have a laugh. I like to be quite straight talking. Um, I'm known for my no bullshit approach. Is often how I get introduced when I do public speaking gigs. So for me to go through that last year 
particularly on the back of me going into a role that for me was the dream job and you know told everybody about it and was promised lots and lots of things to go through that last year um was unbelievable really um dreadful experience in terms of what that put me through um and then an unbelievable experience of standing up to it and then talking to people, great people like yourself and other people about it and again kind of really being able to see that actually through emotional intelligence we can make that choice and identify what it is that makes us happy what motivates us and go for it i think is probably the best way for me to say you know, i'm well known for saying bring it on and i think that's the bit that i can really kind of take i think if i look back throughout my career that's the bit when i've been not only happier but most effective when i really embrace those challenges and looks at what that means for me and for people around me as a human being not what it means to numbers on a spreadsheet or promotions etc yeah, such, such a rich intro and i've literally got about 50 things i'm going to pull apart in the next half an hour so uh, <laughs> honestly it's, it's absolutely brilliant what i'd like to do though if i may is just go back a little bit because i'm you know, looking at your history is really interesting and really fascinating for me because you went back from like in-step where you was helping a training company mm -hmm. with its delivery, yeah, yeah. working, leading customer service teams. or And then you had, you mentioned it, which I'm really interested in. You then had this training development manager role, so your first full-time role, as you said, in training development. But you mentioned about this person who said, Tim, you're going to apply for the job. Can you speak about that a bit more? What was going on for you, sort of maybe in the job before Eddie Stobart, or, you know, how did this person come into your life and how did they go about recognising and seeing this potential in you that maybe you didn't even see in yourself to some extent? Yeah, um, so that, that person is Zoe Sinclair, uh, still an unbelievable close friend of mine. Um, and I met Zoe through a leadership development programme that I was doing at Eddie Stobart. So I think this is why it really resonates with me because I got the opportunity to do what I'm doing now by being a participant in what I now facilitate and what I kind of, you know, do on a daily basis. And it was funny actually as well because, you know, when you reflect on these things, I joined Eddie Sobar at the same time as I became a father for the first time. So I can see that in the organisation was when things started to change in me and when I started to go back to my data instep and through that the, you know, the learning experience and started to apply some of the skills that we know are effective for leaders and again just kind of building those kind of relationships and I think really one of the big things that I remember Zoe kind of saying to me and, and I guess I can look back at it that in that leadership development program I was someone who took it seriously I did everything that was expected of me and I wasn't afraid to have a go so one of the things that Zoe and I kind of laugh about she sent me a whatsapp message of this not long ago actually I famously did a video to camera uh, in a truck um, and crack him, and it, it's not that long ago, but I look about 12 years old, sound about 12 years old as well. And I remember it was things like that, really, that Joey was like, you know, Tim, you were the one that would turn up and do that. You were the one that, if you said you were going to do something, you would turn up and do it. Whereas, as we know, and I know this from obviously managing, leading, facilitating a lot of leadership programs, people attend them, but are sometimes a bit passive in them. So, yeah, I'll turn up. I'll do what you ask me to do. I'll do an assignment, and as long as I get a pass, it's fine. But all this other stuff, no, I'm too busy, I'm too busy, I'm too busy. So I guess through me kind of really just being prepared to have a go and put that extra time in, and I can remember going in, going to the office on Saturdays to do my assignments and do that kind of extra learning and really threw myself into things like the external projects that you got involved in. 
So I think that was a bit for me really, is probably that bit where I was able to say, well, I, I really benefited from that learning experience by throwing myself into it. And I guess maybe demonstrating the integrity of doing what I said I was going to do. And then that's ultimately where I guess kind of Zoe saw that potential in me. And then when she told me to apply for the job, and I did, uh, and got the job, lo and behold, and started to work for Zoe, that was that, I guess that was the real experience because that Zoe was that, you know, if we think about the work that you do for a listening organisation about being human-centred, Zoe is that kind of person. And I kind of really learned a lot from her. And don't get me wrong, it was challenging. Um, I've shared this with quite a few people, but Zoe famously told me that I was boring and had to change. <laughs> but she did that from a, an interest in me, not a criticism, not because she saw me as a threat, but because she saw that I loved learning and development and I had this real passion. However, I was still doing everything in too much detail because that's what my ex-managerial positions had me do. So she really kind of challenged me and made me really think about myself, think about my personal brand that nobody ever talked to me about before, think about, again, what I stood for, what I really wanted from this role, and really gave me that kind of, I suppose, courage really to stand up and go, I can do this, I believe in myself, and I can modify my behaviour, I can go and learn, either by reading a book or by being coached or getting qualifications, whatever it might be, and really actually look at, if, if this is what I want to do, how do I build that positive influence to give me the opportunity to do it? Do you, know, do you know what really comes up for me? And I think kudos to, 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 to Zoe, because what's really, really powerful for me, and this is what I really hope people take away from all of these podcasts, Tim, and you're, and you're just a beautiful role model of this. We have not discussed metrics once in the last 15 minutes. <laughs> you, know? you know, there's this myopic focus still in organizations to hit the, no, don't get me yeah. wrong, business model is important. We need to make money. We need to contribute to society. Absolutely. But you do that through people, not in spite of them. And I just love this example you're giving with you and Zoe. You know, she, you have a business to, you know, you've got targets to hit, you've got KPIs, whatever. But you hit in those because she saw this potential in you. And she, she yeah. helped awaken this opportunity within yourself. But it yeah. wasn't about the metrics. It wasn't, I'm sure she didn't come to you and say, hey, Tim, if you do this, you'll be able to hit better metrics. I'm pretty sure that wasn't the conversation that was going on. No, no, not at all. And this is something I'm really, really passionate about. And I challenge a lot of people on this because I would say this metrics, KPIs, that's what you employ people to do. So actually in every organisation, you should have the capability to enable people to do that. You know, why, why do we employ people and then go, but you must hit this target, and you must do this and you must do that. Well, hang on a minute, if you employed me to do that, Surely as an organisation, you have systems and processes that enable me to do that. And of course, that should be managed, that should be measured. And I always kind of look at that and say, well, we should be creating organisations that allow me to walk in and hit that target. Yeah, of course, I might need a three-month induction capability programme where I learn the systems, I learn the processes, I get the introductions, I understand the wider system and how things work. However... You know, this is what I say to people, this, what makes the difference is how you deal with people, how you can deal with that pressure. And it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because it's like anything, the more organisations focus on numbers and targets, the more worked up people get about it, the more imposter syndrome starts to play a part for people, the more that we stop thinking about who we are and how I build relationships and influence people to help me, and the more that I get stressed and anxious about those numbers. It's like... This might sound like a daft example, 
But if, if all my wife ever does is go on and on at me about, have I emptied the dishwasher? Have I put the dryer on? Have I done this? Have I done that? That's all I'm going to ever bloody think about. And then our relationship's going to turn sour because I'm going to think, oh, she's coming through the door and all she's going to ask you about is bloody washing up. That's all I'm going to think about. And it might be like a silly analogy, but that's what happens in organisations. You know, even the best salespeople, and I don't mean the people who sell the most, I mean people who build relationships, who people aspire to be like because they're human beings, they don't focus on the targets. They focus on the human being in front of them and focus on what they need to do to be a better human being. So, yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it, that we kind of have this world where it's all about numbers and metrics. However, if I'm honest with you, I think a lot of that is people manage that way because they're insecure about how they should build a relationship with people and they think, well, I can't have a conversation with him because it might be difficult or it might get emotional. Actually, what I'll do is just go into this control and command and I'll talk about numbers. Do you know what? There's a really kind of simple way I think of, of making people think about this. And this is this bit of no one wakes up in the morning wanting to go to work to be managed because managed equals being controlled. When you wake up in the morning and go to work, you want to be inspired. You want to be led. And it's this simple analogy of helping organisations to understand that and then to help them to focus on, okay, we need to create an environment where people can be human beings. And actually the numbers do take care of themselves. There are a million examples of where that's been successful. Apple is obviously the most important one. And if people are really bothered by metrics, well, Apple were the first trillion dollar business, so they must be doing something, right? <laughs> well, do you know something? Even within my world, um, Tim, so we've managed to work with a, a team at my work organisation over the last three years. and We've transformed what was a very backward looking <laughs> team, to be honest. You know, all about fear. Yeah. Why haven't we hit the numbers? Yeah. Why is this not working? Why, 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 why? All the wrong whys. Yeah. Transform that team over three years to actually, how can we support each other? What's getting in the way? How do we remove the roadblocks? Over yeah. 40% increase in sales and margin over three years. You know, nothing yeah. else has changed. Like, that's even on this small, smaller sort of micro basis. So it's just another example of just, this, this is not soft stuff we're talking about, is it, Tim? No. And it, I've, I've been working for team as part of some consultancy work and exactly what I did with them I got them to kind of take a step back what do we stand for what's the purpose what do you do for your business and you know the feedback from them is that wow actually we don't do this often enough we, we turn up to work in a big organization and we allow everybody else to dictate and determine what we do and actually now we've taken the time to identify our purpose we realize we're the experts here you know we're the real learning experts why are we allowing other people to dictate to us how we operate? And you're right, it's so important just to take that step back and go, this is our purpose and this is what we do for the business because that's what drives that confidence for us to drive it forward. And I think it's this bit of, we all accept that you know, there are minimum deliverables that we have to achieve, even if you work for yourself like I do, there are minimum deliverables that our clients, our, you know, our organisation, our managers, whoever it might be, expect from us. And I think we get so lost and then miss the point that we invest millions of pounds in systems and processes to create, to achieve those minimum deliverables. So actually by then focusing on the human beings and giving them something to believe in. And I think most importantly, let them choose what they believe in. You know, at the end of the day, if you employ decent human beings, 
the purpose that they will create for themselves will be something that contributes to the organization. So let them choose that for themselves because that's when they'll then really follow it and that's when they'll deal with hard times, they'll become more proactive because by focusing on the numbers, it just generates this inertia where we just go, I'll just turn up and do bare minimum then. I'll just turn up, keep doing what I've always done. You're not going to get rid of me and all that kind of stuff. You know, I'll sit here and moan about it. I'll take the pay, I'll take the pension and I'm not really going to contribute that much more to the organisation. And then senior leaders wonder why you know, it costs them X amount of millions every year to keep recruiting and keep introducing new systems because you've wasted the best resource, the people and the decent human beings that work for you. I, I love this language you're using. I, I want to come back a bit more to Infuse shortly. Um, mm-hmm. But you wrote a really, really cool LinkedIn um, post recently. <laughs> you're talking about the guy next to you on the train, right? Yeah. It's linked to what you're just saying, but I think it's a really important example of choice. Yeah, it's, uh, sorry, I always laugh about this because I always think, why do I always end up in these bloody situations? <laughs> so yeah, I was on a train room. It was, last, it was only last week, actually, on the way to Birmingham. And I was sat at a table. I'd actually treated myself to a first-class ticket because it was cheap. Um, and I was sat there, and there was me and this other guy at the table, and he was opposite, and he was already on the train when I got on. He had his laptop open and was furiously typing away. And as I sat down, and I kind of noticed him straight away because as I sat down, the um, lady who was working on the train brought his breakfast over for him. And he almost didn't even look up at her. And he kind of just took the plate and was just kind of eating away while still typing away on his laptop. So I kind of picked up that, okay, this is a guy who is just generally really busy or Cathy really loves his job. Or I don't know, maybe he's looking at Sky Sports News. So anyway, my. Uh, I love, one of the things I love about train journeys is, is that you can just grab 10 minutes mindfulness because I'm a big believer in mindfulness practice. I've done a bit this morning before coming on here. So I kind of, you know, that, that bit of getting up, getting to the station, freezing your ass off on the train station and opening it on time. Right, get on, get what you need out in front of you and everything like that. And then, right, okay, just have 10 minutes. And it's nice because of the motion on the train and all that kind of stuff. It's a really good opportunity to actually really experience that mindfulness so i did as i normally do give me 10 minutes so headphones in eyes shut and all that kind of stuff had my bag next to me my phone on the on the table did that kind of you know you come round, you kind of bring yourself back into the environment and all that kind of stuff and kind of got my notepad out and started getting ready for the stuff that i was uh, traveling to work with the clients that day and the guy opposite me just it felt like he kicked me under the table really but i think that was an intentional but he just he just kind of nervously said to me well, well at first he went well, I thought you fell asleep. What were you doing then? And then before I could answer, he went, were you just meditating? Um, and it's that awful thing when this happens, because it's that bit of, oh, do a boring to death with the difference between meditation and mindfulness. So I, so I just went, no, mate. Um, I said I was just having 10 minutes mindfulness. Um, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, chain, blah, blah, blah. And then that's when he kind of went, he, he looked up from his laptop and went on this kind of tirade. How can you do that on a train? What if somebody nicks your phone? What if you fell asleep? What if uh, somebody nicks your bag? You know, kind of just basically looking at all the negative what ifs. Um, and obviously, I guess unbeknownst to him, he's given away a lot of himself to me because straight away I can say, okay, well, you are clearly quite stressed. You're not really aware of what's going on around you. You're kind of stuck in this bubble of, everybody around me is a bad person, all this kind of stuff. So he kind of went on and on. And, and I just kind of said to him, 
oh, you know, um, I really like doing mindfulness. It really helps me. I've got a big day today. I need a clear mind. I work for myself, kind of blah, blah, blah. You know, obviously shortened it in the LinkedIn post, but just kind of said, you know, what? why don't you try it kind of thing. It really helps to focus you for the day. And his kind of throwaway comment was just, oh, I don't believe in all that rubbish or whatever he said. You know, he just kind of basically didn't believe in it. But then because we'd kind of had that engagement, he then went on to tell me how stressed he was, how important his job is, He's got, I'm sure he referenced his emails, he had five meetings that day, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's Friday and I've got to do this. And basically kind of downloaded all this kind of stuff. And of course, all the time I'm sat there and thinking, mate, if I did a list of everything of why you should do mindfulness, you're telling me every single reason to do it. And that's what I politely replied with, kind of looked me in the eye and said, to be honest with you, mate, I said, Everything you've just described are the reasons why I started mindfulness. And actually everything you've just said, it helps with stress, it helps to clear your mind, it helps you to, I think I said something along the lines of, you know, stop wasting time on the train doing your emails when you can actually have this time to yourself and help prepare for the day. And yeah, he, uh, he didn't really like that, shall we say. He just kind of brought the conversation to a close. Um, and I, I don't why was that? I don't know. Maybe he didn't like the, the fact that I played it back to him. Maybe he just doesn't believe in that, as he said. Um, but I think the thing for me is, you know, that's just me and one bloke on a train on the way to Birmingham. How many other thousands or millions of people are actually going through the same thing that he's going through? And look, me and mindfulness, this isn't me being all evangelical, because I used to be that bloke. I used to be him. I would get on a train... I'd get my laptop out, I'd try to look important, I'd, I'd try and do, you know, every waking minute, you know, I mean, I can literally remember, I had a, a one of the famous examples for me, I had a painkiller injection in my back, so I had a bit of surgery on my back uh, after our second child, and I made that sound like I gave birth to my second child, I didn't. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I've had a lot of trouble with my back, I had this painkiller injection, um, and then that night, I'd had the day off work and then was working from home the day after. Insane when I think about it, having had an epidural. And I remember I, I, I was up at like two o'clock in the morning, running a report and doing V lookups on Excel just because I was in that moment like this guy on the train of everything's important. I have to do everything. You know, and I think it's, for me, then starting to do mindfulness and, and I guess understanding more about me, what makes me more effective. That was the point of why I kind of wanted to say what I did to that guy, really, because look, we're all busy. We've all got lots of things to do. It's just about stop telling yourself how busy you are and actually just stop and go, well, what's important for today? You know, because it's this bit, isn't it? I think it's Simon Sinex or something along the words of, if we think about everything we have to do, we feel overwhelmed. Whereas if we do the one thing that we need to do, we make progress. And it is just that kind of, you know, one step at a time. You know, actually being able to say, I don't need to reply to that today. You know, and actually, you know, the, the fascinating thing about him was he, and, and linking back to me, was this, this element of, oh, I've, got to, I've got to do this, and I've got to send this report, and I've got to do this. At the time, the reports that people do in organisations, that data exists in the same system that they're getting it from, that everybody else uses. But we kind of have this, I must send it out because it makes me look important, and they want it from me. The brilliant thing is, after work he was doing, People probably don't even read the stuff that he was sending out. But yeah, it was just really fascinating for me. And I guess perhaps a, a bit of way of reflecting for me to think that I used to be that him. Now, 
Am I better at my job than him? Don't know. No idea what he does. Does that make me a better human being? No, of course it doesn't. Because he's still got all his family and friends and, you know, everything like that. I think the bit for me that stands out for me is it just selfishly helps you to have a clearer mind, helps you to enjoy what you do more. And actually, that's more important than anything. So, yeah, it was really fascinating. But, yeah, like I said, I do tend to find myself in those situations where perhaps I just need to keep me gobshed in the future. <laughs> Yeah, it was just, and funny enough, the reaction on LinkedIn, a lot of people have kind of commented on it and, you know, kind of said that they've seen that happen and people said things like that to them. And, you know, look, mindfulness is a choice. Do it or don't. You know, I'm a big advocate of it. And I think it was just that difference of him, you know, kind of being lost in his laptop and not seeming that happy, really, if I'm honest. Whereas a bit for me, I was just a bit like, I'll do my prep and then I'll read a book and I'll chill out. And, you know, I went and had a good day. I hope he did too. But... Yeah, it's just fascinating, really, that I think we put ourselves in that situation and the choice is, no, just have 10 minutes. That's literally all I would do. Yeah, so it's wonderful. There's so many things come up for me in that. I really wanted to touch on that with this being a human-centred podcast because the two big things for me in our choice, yeah, and it's, it's really hard, and I think what I'm sensing happened, because, again, I was one of those people. Yeah, I burnt myself out two and a half years ago Yeah, because I was telling myself I wasn't good enough. I told myself, I've been passed over promotion. I, I challenged bullying in the workplace and was told to go yeah. away. Yeah, so all of this stuff. So, but ultimately, none of those things caused me to feel the way yeah. I did. It's what I told myself in the moment about that situation that caused. So this yeah. guy, at the end of the day, yeah. all you've done is hold the mirror up. You've not told him anything. Yeah, you've, yeah, you've yeah absolutely. He's, he's looked at it and gone, oh, yeah, I don't want to. I, I choose to be a victim. I choose to yeah. be in my work. And it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to sort of like wake up from that, but it's a lot easier to be a victim, Tim. Yeah, it, it is absolutely, Gary. I think that's the bit why I, you know, a big, a big kind of focus of my work with NQs is, is around emotional intelligence and creating that environment where people can develop the most intelligence. And you're right, it is that, you know, our greatest opportunity is the time between the stimulus and the response because we get to choose our response. And, you know, even that point of, this is really important to me, it's that bit of when you wake up in the morning and that bit of that's the first kind of response that you get to choose, you know, and so often, like I thought about there, you know, and, and like you say, I was waking up at two, three, four o'clock in the morning and my response was to get stressed, was to get anxious, was to, like you say, question myself, was to run through things in my head that hadn't even happened so that then my response was stress, I'm the victim here, I better rush to work and start work to prove that I'm good because I'm the first in the office and I'm doing this. And it is that bit of, you know, when I'm working with individual coaching clients, I ask them to think about that. When you open your eyes in the morning, what's the first kind of response you get to when those emotions start to come in? You know, and I don't mean that, oh, I'm knackered or I'm, I had 10 pints last night or whatever. I mean, this is my day ahead. You know, again, I don't mean my kids have me up since three in the morning. This is what I'm about to do. What's your response to that first stimulus? And look, we have to live in the real world. You know, there's no utopian place to work. But I, I think for me, if you can create a situation where 80% of the time you wake up in the morning and go, good, I get to go to work today. I choose to do this. You, you're on to a winner as far as I'm concerned. Because things will happen, you know, things... My, our daughter had us up in the middle of the night, so you, you lose an hour of sleep and all that kind of stuff. It's that bit of being able to say, actually, yeah, 
80% of the time I wake up and choose that it's a positive response because you're right, we have that choice. Even if we wake up and think, I've got to go to work today and do this meeting that I don't want to be in. I've got to go to work today and see my boss who I don't really like. You then choose the response to that because you can choose to say, okay, I'm going to go into that meeting and I'm going to get out of it what I want. I'm going to be brave and put my points across. And I can actually go, do you know what? Whatever happens today, I get to come home to my family. So it's that, it's that choice that we can make in terms of how we respond to that stimulus. And that guy last week on the train, clearly he'd just chosen, well, I've got loads to do, so I'll just, I'll just get up and get on the train and be really busy and be ignorant to people and tell people, I don't believe in this and I don't do that. And you're right, all we can do, and I, and I guess that's the bit that I love about what I do, is, is hold up the mirror and let them have a choice just to kind of do something differently. Yeah, but, but very cool. And again, as you, as you say, you, you know, none of this stuff is from judgment. It's just from a point of, you know, there's many options, isn't it? You know, if, you, if you're looking directly in the yeah. mirror, at least you know what you're dealing with. Yeah. Yeah, and it's funny, actually, because I told my wife about that when I got over for last night, and she said to me, well, what did she say? Did you get off the train at the same time? I was like, no, no, he said, and she went, well, what did you say? I said, I just looked at you in the eye and said, have a good day, mate. <laughs> what, what, what else am I going to do? <laughs> I hope you gave him a business card as well. So, <laughs> can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> just, just, just in case you need me, here's the Tim. Here's the Tim yeah. back phone. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, so, you know where to find me. Yeah, exactly. You're shining your light up in the sky. Um, so, explain a little bit to me because I'm really interested. I think it's coming out quite clearly from our conversation so far. But you speak about your purpose being to make people think. Speak. So speak a little bit more about that. What, where does that come from within you, Tim? What, why is it so important to you to help people think? There's a lot of this um, that goes back to when somebody said to me in a particular organisation, they said the words to me, Tim, I don't pay you to think. And my response, I guess without thinking, was, well, what the hell do you pay me for then? And it, I then got feedback on that because people witnessed that. And it, and it just really kind of stuck with me. And it is this element of we need to enable people to think because the human brain, triggered by the human emotion, is ultimately what creates everything. You know, I'm sat in the kitchen, so there's a cooker behind me. The human brain created the cooker. I can see a picture behind you. The human brain created photography. You know, it creates relationships. It creates everything in our human brain. The best part of the human brain is, is triggered by that feeling part of our brain. And I think we just, we're, we're at great danger, and I, and, and I mean like kind of society and, and organisations, everything here, that we continue to work in this way of we, we recruit somebody and I just stick you in a chair or I stick you on a production line or I stick you in a meeting room or whatever it may be, and we're just expected to do what you're told. And there's a real kind of ambiguity for me here that organisations are forever bemoaning the fact that, you know, we're spending this amount of money on recruiting people. Why aren't people staying? Why aren't we performing better? Why aren't we here selling as many kitchens as last year, whatever it may be? It's because we're not engaging with people enough to think. You know, we're not actually getting them into an organisation and saying, you do that job, how do you think we could do it better? And actually asking them the most important questions. And I see that in every organisation, not just your kind of blue-collar, hairy-arse organisations, right the way through to your kind of start-up organisations, you know, who, who share with the world that we are this and we are that. 
in reality, they're making the same mistakes. They'll sell you the dream, bring you in, but then just do as you're told. And of course, what you're doing then is stifling everybody's freedom, let alone creativity, ability to get better. And I even mean this, look, even, even this classic bell curve that people talk about in this talent where, you know, you've got large organizations where you've got a big population of people who say, no, I, I want to do the same job. I'm happy in this. I don't want to progress. They're the people who it's just as important, if not more important, they're the ones that you really need to get to think about what they're doing, be it through their motivation, be it through helping them to remind themselves how they contribute to you know, the wider organization and the bigger business goals, because otherwise we will just continue to have organizations that are full of inertia and just full of this attitude of, oh, I don't need to worry about that. My boss gets paid to do that. I just take it this far and then I email it to somebody else or, and I kind of give up. And a lot of that is because we just stop people thinking. We just, you know, and, and a lot of this comes from as well. A lot of the work I've done with teams, it is with the people on the front line in inverted commas. Mm-hmm. And actually, when you get them together, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, like the team I was referring to earlier, and get them to think and say, well, what do you want from this? What do you, what relationship do you want? That's when you can really see them go, yeah. I can create this world for myself and all right, I may, I, I have tasks to do and certain things that I need to do. However, I can also create this environment for me and the rest of the team where we make a difference. We're happy. You know, we role model the behaviors that are important to us. Because I think that's the other part as well for me is this real purpose of making people think is that too often as adults, we get into this situation where it's Gary's fault. He doesn't do this. It's Tim's fault. He doesn't do that. Ask yourself a question, well, what do you want to do? Because actually the best way to influence others is to role model behaviors that you want to other people. And sometimes there's a bit of delayed gratitude where you have to kind of say, well, actually, if I do this for six months, people will start to notice it. They'll start to ask me about it. They'll start to behave in the same way. Because the bottom line is nobody likes being told what to do. We, we, again, have to get that kind of base skill there, but nobody wants to go to work every day just to be told what to do. You know, it's amazing, isn't it, that a lot of the great ideas that come through that make organisations better come from the people who do the job. Not, not or maybe I shouldn't say this because I'm one of these now, but not the consultants that you pay for 12 months to come in and look at it. Actually, the best consultants talk to the people who do the job and, again, get them to think about it get them to actually go, yeah, actually, you know, if I'm a truck driver, when I arrive at a customer's site, I don't want an argument. I want to be able to make that delivery and drive home or drive to the next depot. So actually the way I can achieve that is by being calm, is by being professional, is apologizing if I'm late, is simply by smiling and asking questions. We all have that within us. It just, because of the world and how busy we are, and everything else that's going on, we sometimes just have to take that time to say, just make people think, just ask them some questions, just remind them that they've got that 30 seconds to just stop and think. I said for me, otherwise, that's where you have this, you know, lack of productivity, um, lack of engagement that everybody seems to put a big price on, although I'm not sure that engagement is actually what people talk about it being you know, pool tables and free fruit, who cares? (laughs) Engagement is how you feel when you walk into work. And if you walk into work thinking, 
I'll just get told what to do. Well, you're just going to sit there miserable and not be productive and not be engaged because, oh, great, you've got an, an engagement activity going on over here, but 80% of the time I just feel worthless and nobody's asking me what I think. So, yeah, for me, there's a big realisation that I got more affected by starting to think and by people coaching me. And for me, again, it goes back to that environment, create that environment where people can really think because that's what drives creativity, engagement, productivity, performance, profits. Everything comes from engaging with people to be able to think. You know, something it's it's really interesting the way you fra- where you phrase it and frame it actually, Tim. Because you know I'm a big believer in this as well. And what what I'm sensing, and please challenge or or, or add to what I'm about to summarise, it is all about this space creation, and it's about mm-hmm. it's about people allowing themselves to stop. So it's not even yeah. about the line manager saying, Tim, Gary, it's okay for you to stop. It's for us as individuals to take that accountability and that choice to say, I've got some ideas. I believe that this is important. I would like to get these voiced because I think there's, there's still a lot of fear that I see that organizations and teams are still not safe enough. And it's yeah. going to take that courage and that vulner- the vulnerability of a leader to say, I don't know, and the courage of the people at the front line to say, I do. And somehow yeah. I think people like you, I and others need to help bridge that gap between I don't know yeah. and I do. Yeah. Does, does, does that sort of resonate with you or would you challenge that? Yeah. I, no, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I was on somebody recently who, through what I've been coaching the team and developing, they, they kind of said, you know, I've decided to do what we've been talking about. I've decided to seek forgiveness. And <coughs> they described it as, in their words, in inverted commas, as going rogue. And I said, that, I said, fantastic, that's great. What result did they get? How do you feel? You know, kind of debriefed it. And I said, look, the only thing I want to pick up on here is that's not really going rogue. It's you doing what everybody wants you to do. It's you being effective. It's you accepting the vulnerability, being brave and saying, no, I'm going to do something different here. And I think that one of the reasons I was really keen to do the podcast with you, Gary, because I think this, this element of value through vulnerability is just massive. And, and there's a bit for me, like you say there, of, of leaders embracing that and helping organisations and teams to really kind of embrace that. And I think for me, there's, there's a balance here of where a lot of people now are starting to talk about this psychological safety. And I, and I challenge this a little bit because psychological safety is massively important. However, I see psychological safety more as this element of I get up and I want to go to work because I feel safe, because I can be myself. And we've got to get the balance right here because too much psychological safety stops us feeling vulnerable. And feeling vulnerable is often what makes us identify the most amazing opportunity because I feel a bit nervous about this. I feel a little bit of fear. I'm not really sure how it's going to go. That's what drives us to have a go. So I think we've really got to get this balance right because sometimes we we can aim for too much safety. And of course, I, I mean this literally from a world of where people's mental health is looked after. We we feel safe in that workplace. However, we, we can't, we can't ever be, take away that vulnerability because that's what stops people saying actually I don't know the answer here actually I need some help you know it's that bit of if we get too safe well you just might as well build a concrete wall and live in your comfort zone for the rest of your life you know and as we know whether you see it as a cliche or not people perform best when they step outside the comfort zone when they really challenge themselves you know if I think 
I guess in my personal experience, the biggest example for me would be last year when I felt more vulnerable than ever in terms of hearing those words of kind of you're suffering from severe depression and those times when I couldn't get out of bed, you literally would stay in bed. And I'm someone who's got a wife and two young children, so that's massive. You know, and when your daughters are going, why is daddy not coming to the park? Is daddy okay? You know, that, I don't think you can get more vulnerable than that. And <laughs> through my emotional intelligence, I decided to embrace that vulnerability and say, well, let's find out more about it and let's have conversations about it. Let's actually write things down. Let's talk to my wife. Let's talk to my mates about it. You know, my mates who are 40-year-old blokes, you know, <laughs> don't really have those conversations, let's say. So, okay, I'm using quite a personal experience there. However, if you, <laughs> if you think about that in the workplace, that vulnerability is what gets you better, is what takes you to that next level, is what makes you go, right, okay, we might not have hit the target this year, or we did hit the target, what do we need to do differently next year? What are the things that we need to be aware of? What are the things that I need to go back to my team with and say, I don't really know what, what we should do here, what do you think? And you see this a lot. You know when people get promoted for the first time, I think that's one of the most important times in people's lives because that's when you're at one of your most vulnerable stages in your career because I've been promoted for the first time, often to manage the team that you were part of. Mm -hmm. You know, that great thing of, I left work on Fridays, everybody's made, now I'm everybody's boss. <laughs> and I think often then what happens is that vulnerability turns into, I don't want to let the organisation down, I don't want to let my manager down who's promoted me. And that's when we then go down the route of I've got to hit the target, I've got to look busy, I've got to look important. And I don't embrace the vulnerability because I think that my pressure is that I have to perform. Actually, if we continue to embrace that vulnerability and you know, sit in front of the team and something I encourage my clients to do is every three months in a team meeting, stop for 10 minutes and go around the room, what's working well, how can we get even better? And from a leader's point of view in the team, embrace vulnerability. Don't just go, oh, we all had breakfast last week, or I missed his target. Actually create an environment where you can embrace vulnerability. You look your leader in the eye and go, I don't think you made the right decision. This is what I think. And create that environment where you can have those kind of conversations. Because mm -hmm. that vulnerability, for me, is what drives us forward as human beings. You know, whether you break it down to the fight or flight kind of thing. I think too often we try to create an environment that's too safe instead of actually saying, well, we always need that little bit of vulnerability. And I'm talking here, you can create that vulnerability through telling somebody that you're boring, like Zoe did for me and all that kind of stuff, through conversations, not through challenging them and pushing them and, you know, kind of making them feel threatened, just by having those conversations. Because I think if we don't, it does tip, it, the tipping point was too far where I just feel, I just, I'll feel safe because I know what I'm doing. And then that's when people miss out on those really good ideas. Because we've got to embrace that vulnerability because it's what drives us as people at the end of the day. Oh, uh, uh, oh, it's, it's really interesting for me, actually. So I actually had um, Amy Edmondson on episode 29, the Harvard mm -hmm. professor who brought psychological safety into the mainstream. And I, I like where you're going with it. I do like the challenge. I can see where you're coming from. It's almost like psychological stretch would be yeah. a better. So, but, yeah, but, yeah. 
but, but but I also think what's interesting, Tim, is language, you know, soft skills, hard skills, you know, I think what's becoming more and more interesting for me is that as we have more of these conversations, which is a really good thing, language, which has always been important, is kind of particularly important in business circles, because what you interpret as psychological safety versus me versus someone else, yeah, but it'll be very different. So again, you you just mentioned yeah. a really important word for me, which is the conversation. So, if, yeah. so what does it mean to Tim to be psychologically safe, or what does it mean to Gary to be vulnerable? Because once you all understand how you all view that, you can then work yeah. with it. But if you're all guessing what you think it means to each other, which I think is probably one of the biggest challenges of our time, is we like to believe we're right. Again, yeah. invulnerable. So you know, yeah. we don't we don't lean in that often. I don't think still in many organisations to say. No, no. I don't know or I don't understand. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that language piece, I think you've hit the nail on the head. And I think that's why I refer to the psychological safety piece in that. Because what, like you say, Amy bringing that into the, the mainstream and into people's minds, what she really sees as psychological safety is not what a lot of people are talking about with psychological safety. And what are quite a few organisations I've read about, I've heard about, I've spoken to, I've seen on LinkedIn, what they're doing is taking this psychological safety and turning it into, well, we have that because we have mental health first aiders and we have this and we have that and we have X campaign and we have this. But all those things in isolation are fantastic things. However, that's not what creates, in my view, that's not what creates psychological safety. And I think for me, like I say, my worry is that people hear that term and, and don't really kind of sit back and go, well, what does that really mean? Mm. And actually, how do we really need to articulate that in our in our organisation? Because it's interesting, really, I was telling somebody when they, and they were asking me about, do I know people do mental health first aid and stuff like that? And they made some recommendations. And I just asked them a few questions and said, you know, what, what are you thinking about with that? And they said, well, you know, what we've done is we've, we've nominated so-and-so and this person's going to do it and this person's going to do it. So said, okay. Those people you're talking about, what are their positions in the business? All the managers, because we think this is a good way of kind of promoting that. How do they feel about being nominated? We've not spoken to them yet. Okay, right. Um, just just describe to me your environment. What's your, what's your workplace like? Oh, we're really cool. It's really open plan. And all our meeting rooms are all glass. And we do this and everything. You know, we've, got, we've really moved into this agile way of working that everybody seems to talk about. And I just played it back and said, right, okay, so well, so first of all, I said, I think you need to have a conversation with the people who you want to mental health person with that booking training. I think you really need to look at why you need it, how many, how many mental health cases have you had in your organisation, what's the real driver behind this, and just thinking about your environment. You know, there's a big challenge for me here around engaging with these conversations because if I go back to my experience, when I first spoke to my employer about it, I wouldn't have wanted to do that in a glass office. I wouldn't have wanted to do that with somebody that everybody else in the business knew was a nominated mental health first aider because we put the names up on the wall. So again, there's this real bit of, you've got to just stop and think that little bit further because everything you're doing is categorically for the right reasons and I'm an advocate of everything that that organisation's trying to do. You've just got to make sure that you're not doing it because it's a tick box or because somebody talked about it at a conference, you've really got to go back and go, well, what does this mean in our organisation? And actually what we might be better off doing is possibly working with an external company where, I don't know, for however many days a month, that person is here and you can drop in and have a conversation with them. Because actually, if my mental health first aider 
is also my boss or a boss who contributes to my anxiety and I see them as putting me under stress, I'm not going to talk to them about it. <laughs> or, or it's going to take a great deal of work to get to that situation. So I think we've just got to be careful that, like you say, when we hear that language, just really have conversations with people about what it means to them, talk to people in the organisation, be brave and say upwards, this isn't just about us being a better employer because we've got mental health first aid, this is about us creating the environment where people can have the conversation because actually that's, that's where the big challenge falls down. It, it's been funny actually when I've suffered with mental health, I was lucky that I had a, one particular individual in an organisation who was also my boss at the time um, who I could go and approach to it and she was amazing. She sponsored me to do what I'm doing now, really opened up to me, encouraged me to, to do things. When she then left the business and I had a new boss, that, that new boss, okay, continued to talk to me. But also, when I had, I think I had three days off sick in total, I think, with, with my depression, and it was all planned, we'd agreed that I'd do some counselling and stuff like that. They then also encouraged me that you don't have to re report it as depression, Tim. You don't have to write it down, what, you know, what the real problem is. You can just put down you've got a cold. So straight away, it's that bit of, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> Would I, I, I telling the truth or we're not? I mean, I was quite off and said, no, I'm going to report it because it should contribute to the stats that we review, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, again, it's that bit of, we've got to just really focus on what does Tim need, not kind of suggest this is what the organisation does, this is what we should do. So I think, yeah, like, like you say, Gary, that, that element around language. I mean, I, I do love language for that because you can interpret things differently. You can have different conversations. However, I think when it comes to that psychological safety, in particular mental health, organisations really need to, like you said before, hold the mirror up and really look at what that means. Because, you know, ha having conversations about your mental health from a mental health first aid point of view is different to somebody sticking a, putting a bandage around your wrist because you've touched the kettle when it was off. It's a totally different thing. So I think really look at what that's going to mean in your organisation and Ask people what it is that they need. You know, perhaps flexible working is more important than mental health first aid for people. Perhaps developing your leader's emotional intelligence is far more important than mental health first aid. Because create the environment where people can have that vulnerability and do something about it, rather than being reactive, actually look at what you need to do to create the environment. It's it's really it's really interesting for you, Tim and. I think really inspiring actually to know you're now out on your own. You've got loads of work coming in. You're clearly making your impact, which is great. And listening to you talk on this, on this uh, the discussion we're having now, it's really interesting for me because when you talk about creating the environment, in essence, what I'm hearing again, language is creating the space. So you're actually mm. saying, let's just stop. Let's just yeah. get off this hamster wheel and allow ourselves to catch up in our minds and our thoughts and our, our bodies to catch up with yeah. what we're getting on with. Like, yeah. it seems to be a common theme for me. Is that, is that a correct sort of takeaway? Or? Yes, totally. And, and, and going back to that language point, that's something I talk to people about, how are you creating the environment? You know, the, the, the bit that I guess I talk about quite a bit about public speaking gigs is this thing that we talk about empowerment. You know, I can't empower you and you can't empower me. We empower ourselves. And that's what I challenge organisations, leaders, teams really. How are you creating the environment for empowerment where people can make a choice in terms of that decision? And you're right, it is about that 
creating that that space, you know, and that doesn't just mean having a few sleep pods or a few uh, chill out spaces in the organisation. It means the space in your head and, and allow you to kind of reconnect with your heart, really. And I think yeah, that for me is where it's just so important that organisations actually say, well, okay, how do we help you to create that space? And it, may, it doesn't have to be a space in the workplace per se, you know, not just the physical environment. It doesn't have to be a space in work time. What can organisations do to encourage people that when they leave work, they do have that space and that time, you know, where they can kind of just reflect and say, okay, what do I want to do tomorrow? What am I going to achieve? How do I build that better relationship? Instead of, like you say, just going constantly on that kind of hamster wheel because life's complicated. Life's hard. You know, I'm 40 years old now, so I feel I'm qualified to say that, but it is, isn't it? You know, crack I've been through nothing compared to what other people go through. And it is that bit for organisations is just saying, how do we engage with people to allow them to create that space for themselves to be able to really take that time to to think as opposed to just a hamster wheel or just kind of thinking about the same things all the time because that's what's going to make the difference and you know sound like my dad now but the younger generations these things are going to, rightly going to be more important for them than it's ever been my, my nine-year-old daughter practiced mindfulness through doing it at school my six-year-old I've, I've written an article recently that will get published in the next in the coming months you know she's experiencing coaching as a, as a six-year-old you know, what, what's that going to mean for the workplace when those two kids are young adults and they're not being given the space to think and they're not getting that coaching? Now is the time that individuals, leaders, teams and organisations have to start looking at how do we evolve. Don't, don't try revolution. Don't try ticking a box by spending loads of money on campaigns. Look at how you need to evolve and how you can create that choice. Because a lot of people in organisations, like my mate on the train last week, go, not for me, thanks, don't believe in all that. That's cool, that's your choice. However, the people who are coming through to replace my mate on the train really believe in it and, and are growing up in a world where they expect it. And I think that's the key thing for me, is how are we creating those environments and that space for people to really go on that journey of evolution. Tim, my friend, I could talk to you all day, literally. We're, 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 we're coming up for an hour, believe it or not. Oh, good Sorry. <laughs> Which is nothing but a compliment. And uh, there will be some people that will stay with us, Tim. I can tell you that for sure. But um, honestly, brilliant. But, but that, that's a beautiful way to really start to wrap this up. I really, really do think yeah. it's a beautiful way to start to wrap this up. I do like to ask all my guests one question, though, before you let people know how to reach out to you. Who yeah. or what is inspiring you the most right now? Oh, crikey. Right now? Yeah, it can be anything. It can be personal, it can be work. Just off the first thing that comes to mind. So I don't want you to think. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know what? This might be predictable for people who know me well. Um, music and vinyl records. So I'm obsessed with music and I'm avid collector of vinyl records. However... When I went self-employed fully from January, naturally you have to watch the pennies. So I've saved up in the last few weeks. I've treated myself to quite a few new vinyl records. So I've kind of now gone, really gone back to kind of like at the weekend and today when I'm working from home, we just kind of have them on constantly in the background. And that, it really reminds me of what I love. It reminds me of a bit about what I stand for because I listen to particular kind of music, that's fans, etc. 
and I think brings it back into your consciousness about that thing that again when you wake up in the morning those things that you're really excited by and what helps you to find the space like we've been talking about and help you to be the most inspired you can possibly be so yeah probably predictable but yeah I would definitely go on I suppose right in the mix of that would be a combination of David Bowie and Jimi Hendrix which hey if you can always name drop them too it's never a bad thing is it <laughs> Jim Roberts Jimi Hendrix David Bowie you've done it you've done it <laughs> you've arrived Tim you've arrived wow I never thought I'd be in that kind of company <laughs> No, you've been an absolute joy, Tim. How can people, what's the best way for them to find you um, online or, or by the mediums? Yeah, so you can connect with me via my website, which is enthusedcoaching.com. Um, I'm busy on LinkedIn, shall we say, so you can find me Tim Roberts on there. And I'm also on Twitter, which is at TimRoberts78. So yeah, drop me a line, say hello. Wonderful. Well, I'll make sure all of those are added to the show notes, Tim. And thanks so much for your time. Yeah, have a great day. Thanks, Gary. You too. Appreciate the opportunity, mate. Cheers, take care. Bye. Hi there, your podcast host Gary Turner here, just wrapping up this brilliant conversation with Tim Roberts. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I mentioned that he is a direct talker and really passionate in this space, and I really, really do appreciate Tim for that. A few of the things I wanted to leave you with that I took away from this conversation. How often in your own life, your personal life or indeed your work life, how often have you been told directly or maybe it's been implied that we don't pay you to think? Really, really interesting statement that seems to be a very out of date way of um, managing these days. However, clearly it's still prevalent and I certainly experienced that in my own personal life as well. So what's the impact of that? is of course we lack engagement, of course it stifles people's freedom and creativity to contribute to something bigger than themselves, to want to challenge the status quo. So question out there to anyone that's currently a line manager or maybe someone that's thinking of becoming one, we don't pay you to think, is probably not one of the best ways to motivate your people. Um, after that tongue-in-cheek statement, I think this is a really, really important reflection, not one I've actually thought about before, so I thanked him for this. When people get promoted for the first time, is one of the most important times of somebody's career. How often have people with technical specialists promoted into roles leading other human beings? A, quite often I believe, without necessarily the, the skills development and the behavior development um, trainings go with that. But also just the fact that might be that first leadership role. Uh, you, know, you really do need support then, like deep, deep levels of support uh, for people in that, at that particular time of their career and their journey. And I think that's such a cracking re reflection from Tim. I enjoyed hearing Tim talk about the fact that people manage through numbers when they don't know how to handle the human beings. And I think you know, that resonates with me so, so much. I think the reason we have still, I feel, quite a pre prevalence of not necessarily micromanagement, but certainly management through fear, management through numbers and metrics and KPIs, the ROI and caring and well-being still being required, et cetera, is because people generally don't know how to engage on a human level. And so I'm really, really hopeful that this next point around psychological safety is one that is taken on more and more seriously by leaders and employees alike. It takes courage to step into that, uh, into that space, to, to actually come up with an idea, to challenge the status quo. Uh, but I did like Tim's challenge to what psychological safety meant to him. And I'd not heard that before, that some people are sort of mixing and mashing the term to fit their particular context, which in itself isn't a problem. But his fear is that they, they may end up actually dampening down vulnerability and dampening down people being courageous to challenge the status quo. 
And the final point for me, if we look at the future of work conversation that is ongoing, he spoke about that his nine-year-old is experiencing mindfulness and his six-year-old is experiencing coaching in some form. So for those organizations that are not taking being more human-centered seriously and designing their organizations around and not in spite of their people, there's a real-life thing to be thinking about. You know, the next generation in 15, 10, 15 years' time, those people will start their early stages of work and life in, in the world, real world of work, and they're going to have very different expectations. So, yeah, I, I took so much away from this conversation with Tim. He's a lovely guy, really engaging and super passionate in this space around coaching and uh, workshop and facilitation. So please do reach out to him. Reach out to myself. Let us know what you th thought about this conversation, what works, what doesn't work. But whatever you're thinking, I'd really appreciate a review at iTunes. Helps us try and reach more people. And in the meantime, wishing one and all a fantastic morning, afternoon or evening, wherever you are in the world. And again, I'm your Value Through Vulnerability host, Gary Turner. Thank you.